I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me and the conclusion of Crawl Space by Karen Heinz. In part two of Crawl Space, we met Karen, who has naively bought a lemon yellow coach house as a condo alternative to fulfill her dream of home ownership. But her dream quickly turns to a nightmare when she learns that her home is actually a poorly renovated garage that she can't sell or afford to fix. She falls deeper into debt and despair, and as her financial and mental health reach a tipping point, she discovers a mysterious, foul odor emanating from her crawl space. This is the conclusion of Crawl Space by Karen Hines. I was, in 2006, writing pitches for television shows. At CTV and Global, I was a person of limited interest. That is, my agent was able to get me meetings, and I took them, the vapor of death swirling around my skirts. And I wowed those executives with weird ideas. The ideas were intriguing enough that they would usually ask to see a sample, an episode, even a scene. But I was pretty much stoned on gravel at this time, and I could finish nothing. I was awash in unformed ideas. Foggy images flooded my mind. Interior. Day. Kitchen. Cellar and buyer fucking on granite countertop. Her wetness pooling on the gypsum, his cloven hooves skittering over the glassy surface as he thrusts his cellar cock inside her buyer pussy. She tries to grip the beveled edge to stop them from sliding off the countertop and onto the wide plank floors. But even in the throes of coitus, her manicured nails and his goat-hooved feet can't make a scratch on a diamond-sealed surface 3.8 billion years old. A Woodlands Ojibwe mother and baby staring at them through the lead-paned windows trimmed with pharaoh and ball popcorn white semi-gloss. Cut to... Title credits. I actually presented these. I wrote hundreds of them. I made hundreds of them when I should have been making money. But you see, the balance of my mind was disturbed. July turns to August and I am gagging in my sleep. I call Danny. The smell hits him five feet from the front door. I make him come inside. Fat flies are hurling themselves at the window screens. They want in. Want some animal. I thrust the paperwork for the sale at him and ask him how this could happen. I can't sell. I can't rent. I can't live here. And this is when he explains what the fine print means. This is when he teaches me the caveats, almost tenderly. 
The seller signed that everything had been done according to permits, to the best of her knowledge. He sets a manicured fingertip beside her initials, beside the fine print. Had I not understood that? I just laugh. A wave of smell rolls through the room. He stares into my eyes as he breathes in the funk. Then he tells me that in the killing fields, the stench is profoundly more horrific. And in that moment, I am so much more filled with contempt for him than with compassion for the dead that I pray to my gods for forgiveness. You play the real estate game. You internalize it. Now your home isn't about comfort, beauty. You are not doing this for joy anymore. You are just like any Joe looking to sell. Your house is your trap. Your house is your punishment. Thirsty. So thirsty. But I know this life is a dream. And with you as my human, I lived in a dream world, projecting each day as a repeated instance of the present. Somehow I have betrayed you, and now you have forsaken me. Forgive me for everything, my human. You were my treasure. Studio Audition. Cartoon series airing in 50 countries. 26 episodes as Pi, a little dog with separation anxiety. Always thinks she's dying when her owner leaves. Great fucking part. A thousand bucks an episode. The executives actually applaud after my third callback. But they want to meet me. I leave the booth to shake their hands. I am self-conscious that I smell like death. They look into my eyes. Tracy Hoyt got that one. August 2006, I start borrowing money from my brother just to live on. When MasterCard and Visa get worried about me, which doesn't happen until I'm $66,000 in, somehow until that point they thought this heretofore theater and occasional television and film actor would be able to handle the $986 a month in interest on top of the $1,755 minimum payments between them. $65,000 was actually okay, but not sixty-six. no. There they drew the line. For my own protection... My brother was another story. I will owe him eternally. And I don't mean that in a sentimental way. I mean, I will owe him money eternally. Oh, and so that you know, where my creditors drew the line is where, statistically, any higher than that and you get into suicide territory. That is, clients whose obligations rise above $65,000 are statistically more likely to suicide. And they don't recover those obligations. But as with hooking, I couldn't commit to filling my own bathtub with blood, partly because it would probably reveal some cheap third-world surface finish like my windowsills that would absorb the blood and stain the tub and make it even harder for my brother to sell the house. Late August, my brother returns from Mount Kilimanjaro. This is not a joke. He actually climbed Mount Kilimanjaro during this time. He is a successful sibling in all regards, and he is able to get someone to go into the crawl space within hours of returning to the country, like to go underneath. His girlfriend's brother, Josh, is a construction worker with a degree in engineering, so he knows his way around a shaky structure. And he's a mensch. 
Josh is courageous and generous with his time and his body, and with the body of his buddy, whose name is actually Buddy. By this time, I was chewing gravel like Tic Tacs and doing vermouth shots in the afternoon, both of which I offered to Josh and his buddy, but which they refused. Which was unfortunate because, as it turned out, as soon as they dug the first hole, the smell, which had been profound, now poured up in moist waves, and both of them lost their lunches in the neighbor's yard. The crawl space was really shallow where the animal was, so they had to dig a trench. Josh, being the thinner of the two, would wriggle in with a shovel, retrieve, and then his buddy Buddy would pull him out by the feet. And I say would as though this were a thing that happened multiple times, because it did. So that they could get it all. Because after three months in a sealed space, in record heat, this animal was... Josh said, jelly. And now, a slideshow. Slide number one is a green animal eye, glowing. Don't worry that you can't see the slide. It is imaginary, just like the trap door on my deck. Next, a close-up of the stripped screws with cartoon question marks floating all around them. Mystery. Next... An ultrasound of the soft spot in my brain, responsible for my never asking Danny what he had seen underneath. Next, close-up of Marilyn's reflection in the porcelain sinker tub, looking down the nickel-plated drain. Next, animal eye, all pupil now. Behind the blackness, hope. Behind the hope, nothing. MasterCard for everything but this. Now that I know that the crawl space underneath my house is only designed for animals to crawl in, I am somehow free. Free from all fear now. Homeowner fear. Because I now know every inch of this place like one knows a new lover whom one has kissed everywhere. Only this lover is disgusting. I feel free from the pressure to achieve anything else in my life, and indeed after this time, I don't achieve much. Professionally, anyway. Not for a while, anyway. I suppose because part of me believes the world I cared about doesn't exist. This is right before the banking crisis. Subprime madness. Bernie Madoff, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae. The world is revealing itself. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. September 11th, 2006. Dear Marilyn and Jason... 
I was so sorry to miss the open house for your new condo alternative for sale on Euclid between Dundas and College. I find myself particularly aroused by the distressed brick wall that is real. Real brick and actually distressed, yet structurally sound. And when I say aroused, I mean aroused. It happens to me now, ever since I lost my shirt on my condo alternative, the one whose fatal defects I have continued to discover and that have made it impossible for me to sell. And though you got away with it, you and your shady realtor and Inspector Magoo, and though I look like the fuck-up, I wanted to point out to you not that I'm bitter, but that I now have this weird and seriously erotic reaction to properties like this one you are selling. And I don't know if you're doing it again, trussing it, faking it, but in my fantasy, you're not. In my fantasy, this new condo alternative slash warehouse in Alley is perfectly sound. Good bones, as they say. Which is why it works as an erotic tool for me. Those distressed bricks are real. They go all the way through to the other side. See, even as I say that, I want to touch myself, like I do when I think of the original honeycomb bathroom tiles that you didn't put there. They are stunning. And to me, they are erotic because they gleam faith. As do the six-inch mill-run planks, the stone stairs, features that were there before you and will be there when you're gone. They scream past and future. And when I study them, remember, this is ten years ago, I want seed planted in me. These antique boutique elements make me yearn for a husband and a child. So all of this is to say that as you proceed, and I will be watching, I will be erotically engaged with you. And if that seems invasive, just think how intimately you are connected with me, my sellers. I will be thinking of you every time I come. And if that seems creepy or weird, just think instead that I'll think of you every time I get fucked. Just as you thought of me when you fucked me. Happy home. Two weeks later... A fat fly buzzes into the kitchen and hurls itself against the bright window. Then another one. And another. They're coming from inside now. Coming up from underneath. The corpse had been very large, but as Josh confessed, he reckoned they didn't quite get it all. So the maggots that have come to life in its wake will turn into more than 900 flies over the next few days, coming in through cracks I can't find. I count them. I have to. When I call the insurance company again to tell them that the problem is now inside the house, they ask, how many? My insurance company sends a disaster specialist because they now considered my house to be the scene of a disaster. A man who looks a bit like an astronaut shows up, and as he dons his white suit and helmet, he tells me about the murder he cleaned up a few blocks away and says that this is pretty easy by comparison. We chat. He's brave. There are cocktails. We have sex. <laughs> Just kidding. We don't. 
The insurance company evacuates me while the inside is treated to rid it of the odor, and the underneath is ozoned to get rid of whatever pestilence may be left behind. I go to a hotel. I crawl into a bed and stay there for three days. Like an astronaut of inner space, I go inside. I make tiny, infinitesimal adjustments and find myself in a new dimension. The animal died below my bathroom floor, directly beneath the porcelain sink with nickel-plated drain attached to a steel pipe that dripped water at a cheap substandard joint underneath. It was a raccoon. Probably. I suspect this because the animal was so large. So said the city of Toronto, who instructed me upon reclamation to place the remains in a small coffin. And when I say small coffin, I mean large Rubbermaid container. And to sit with it until they could come fetch it. Which they did swiftly. Because the animal, which had been decomposing eight inches below my bathroom floor for weeks, was now considered to be a health hazard for my neighbors and I sat with it and I thought about it him her him I hope he went underneath on purpose went into my crawl space to lay down his old body after eight to ten years of travels I hope he chose that little nook where he could curl up and catch cool drops of water on his hot tongue. My dog crawled under the sofa when he died. I think he wanted darkness and cool. To be safe, not exposed, as he set out on his most incredible journey. I hoped the raccoon crawled into this place because he needed its shelter to do the great work of passing over. And it is work for any animal. So he may have needed water. Or did he just get trapped there in November? The AAA wildlife company that did ultimately animal-proof the house showed me what a proper proofing job looks like. It doesn't let animals in, but it lets them out. So did the raccoon starve after licking clean the pudding cups? The Big Mac wrappers? The Mountain Dew cans? Starve after trying to dig and gnaw his way through the wood and cinder blocks? starve and then freeze to death in the absence of his family, with whom he should have been curled up, drink the drops of water that leaked from the faulty pipe as the flipper's realtor son washed his hands, die there, hoping, hoping, and then just thaw in May, after his lonesome soul left his fluffy body. For months, instead of exercise, instead of remunerative work, instead of spending time with friends and family, I do little else besides try to fix that house and sell it. With my brother's financial help, I install fans, air cleaners, and animal proofing that doesn't let animals in, but lets them out. I don't have much of a psychiatric history. But I understand that in a court of law, any course of treatment can undermine an appeal, so I won't be suing anybody. But as fall turns to winter, I am not the girl my friends and family once knew and loved, and I can see that fact reflected in their eyes. 
I have molecules of a dead thing inside my lungs, in my eyes and hair. Like animals, my friends, my family are disturbed by the unnatural. So I keep away. Around that time, a friend from out of town invites me to a cocktail party at the Drake, and I find myself talking to a real estate agent who is the only one there not bothered by the fact that I'm incapable of talking about anything but my crawl space. The raccoon. She asks who my agent was. Danny, I say. Yes, she says, I know him. She asks me the name of Marilyn's son, the listing agent, the inspector. She knows the inspector. She knows the agents, has met them at conferences. They go drinking together, have sat together at a table. She finds it odd that neither of them ever shared that fact with me, even when I was in the presence of more than one of them at the same time. I slam back two martinis and head to Danny's. Two years after I bought the lemon yellow house to which everything had been done, I offered my realtor the opportunity to buy it from me for the same price I had paid two years before in piping hot Roncesvalles village. I was in his kitchen. It was dark. I was shaking. I had not been invited. We were close enough to kiss. I felt the opposite of a charge. He says, I think some people just don't have the genes for this market. They attract catastrophe into their home because they expect their home to confer meaning upon their lives. They believe they deserve something better than what other people have. I say, is this what Royal LePage tells you to tell people like me? He says, Remax. No. I unfold a handwritten letter of complaint to the Toronto Real Estate Board and lay it out on his polished concrete countertop. The letter outlines the eight ways he has contravened their codes. The unchallenged survey, the insufficient inspection of an irregular property, failure to disclose professional and personal relationships. But Danny isn't worried. You see, the Toronto Real Estate Board writes codes, not laws, which Danny would know because he sits on the Toronto Real Estate Board. He says, The problem began when people started believing that satisfaction was their right. And I think that's true. I step out on his perfect deck. I look up at a star and beg it to consume me. Then I remember, Virginia Woolf said that, not me. I have lost my voice. Idiot. They say that LSD can be used to mitigate despair, so I have been taking it. I took some in the last episode, actually, so from here on in will be the acid trip section part of the show. This is the part of the show that can go either way. Which either? The third one. To get things rolling, I'm going to read a little bit of the Realtor Code of Ethics Verbatim. Under all is the land. Upon its wise utilization depends the survival and growth of our civilization. 
Six months after I threatened my realtor with a useless letter, I retained a new realtor and sold the house with full disclosure of all remaining defects. The realtor is instrumental in molding the form of his or her community. Title insurance was transferred for what it was worth, and the inspection lasted four hours. Such functions impose grave social responsibilities, which realtors can meet only by considering it a civic duty to fulfill the realtor's obligations to society. The little lemon-yellow house was the only house in the neighborhood to have lost value over the last two years. Despite having been animal-free for a year, it was now known in the hood as the raccoon house. Such functions impose grave social responsibilities which realtors can meet only by considering it a civic duty to fulfill the realtor's obligations to society. The buyers, Emily and Riche, had money to knock down the back, lift it up off the soil, and make a basement which would add value. I looked into their eyes. They had the gene. A realtor shall not engage in conduct that is disgraceful. Under all is the land. I used to count on my country, but then I realized my country does not recognize itself. I used to worry about my country, then I realized my country doesn't worry about me. I see young people in the subway or the street, and I want to tell them that I would burn my right hand in a fire to change the future. But there is a rhythm at play, something elemental, with a dark heart. We used to live in caves. Before that, we slithered out of the sea looking for shelter. This is a twig orb, a pottery barn decorative twig orb that I bought. It is natural and can twinkle with lots of tiny lights. It provides a textured alternative to traditional outdoor ornaments, but can be used inside as well. Used for, I don't know, but you can place it inexplicably on an equally useless credenza and they go together. It is made of natural twig and tiny metal pins. When I first saw one, I thought, how gorgeous. What a beautiful indigenous objet. And I'm sorry, I don't know the Ojibwe word for objet, but anyway, it's not. I don't know who invented the twig orb, but it can be threaded with tiny LED lights. When it's not in use, you can wrap it in tissue paper and store it securely in a small box or divided bin. I love divided bins. I mean, who doesn't? Sometime before the snow flies, around the time I hand the keys to Reish and Emily's realtor, the raccoon's soul leaves its dusty deathbed and ascends. Up through the substandard pipes and the porcelain sink, up through the pottery barn ribbed glass pendant lamp, through the oyster white painted ceiling and the avenue road roofing roof. 
His spirit soars up through the trees, past the possums, and flies around the neighborhood, looking down on the widow and her son as they coordinate slate with gypsum in a cute two-story Victorian just down the street. The raccoon looks down on Danny in his rover as he escorts a young family through the hood to the soothing strains of Leonard Cohen. The raccoon's soul looks down on his own family, his widow, three adolescents in the shadows in a driveway, huddled over salmon bones, pudding cups, Big Mac wrappers, and ketchupy burger buns. I exit the little yellow house for the last time, set some sweet grass in the window box, and walk down the cobblestone parking pad with the opposite of a dowry. I have less than nothing. In nothingness, I am free. In my freedom, I am home. I head for Chicago, and when I say Chicago, I may mean Prague, and when I say Prague, I may mean Calgary. The raccoon's soul rockets above the city. He flies so high that all the houses and buildings disappear before his dazzled eyes. He heads west over mountains and plains. I follow him. According to the CIBC, at the rate I'm paying, I'll be paying for the little yellow house for 72 more years. On the bright side, it's very low maintenance. I call it my dream house. That was the conclusion of Crawl Space, written and performed by Karen Hines. Our next episode will feature an in-depth interview with the playwright and performer. The floor director for this recording was Jordina Beatty. Dramaturgy is by Sandra Belkowski and Blake Brooker. Crawl Space was first performed publicly at Video Fag in Toronto in September 2015. It was commissioned by William Ellis and Jordan Tannehill. This episode's sound design and edit is by Chris Tolley. If you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast to help us get the word out to more listeners. We'd also love your feedback about our show. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca and follow us on Twitter at expecttheatre or on Instagram at playmepodcast. We'll be back with the next show in our season, Take to Milk Na by Jiv Parashram. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.